This is a good morning. I, there are some faces that I haven't seen in months that I saw this morning, and it just made my heart sing. So, so glad uh, to be together and celebrate this uh, time with each other. We're in Romans, in uh, chapter 10, and just kind of thinking back, uh, if you think about chapter 9, it really was undeniably all about God's sovereignty. And Paul explains how God sovereignly chooses the path that leads to the promised Messiah, how he miraculously protects that promise to bring redemption to the world, and, and that his word has not failed, even though many in Israel at the time failed to believe God's word. But as we talked about, God's actions are not influenced by human intervention, right? And yet, at the same time, all of humanity is held responsible for their actions. We see that in Romans chapter 10. We learn, Paul tells us, that God patiently endures, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to eternal life, to come to repentance. He reveals his truth and graciously invites us to respond. And he promises, as we talked about last week, some, the good news that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so as we think about this, in chapters 9 and 10, we have one of those divine mysteries that we have to preserve. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility are like two sides of the same coin. And even though we cannot really fully comprehend either one completely, we have to accept that both are true because they're biblically proclaimed. And to really err on either side leads to a distortion of one truth or the other in some way. Let me give you an example. If we say that salvation depends completely on us, right? This is all our choice. God's not involved. He's just waiting to see what happens. If that's the, thing, if that's the stance we take, then we deny the reality of human depravity. We overlook the truth that on our own, there is no one who seeks after God, not even one. This distortion invariably leads to legalism. Why? Because I'm convinced that it's all about me and all about my choices and all about what I must do. And if I gain acceptance through my decisions, then I must be able to lose acceptance through my decisions as well. And biblically, that's not true. That is a distortion of the truth. But when you err on that side, those are the places it can lead you. But you can err on the other side as well and say that, well, we have no part to play at all. That we're basically puppets in God's plan of redemption. It makes God responsible for our condemnation, which then corrupts his perfect justice. It would mean that humanity has no stake in God's plan of redemption, and therefore evangelism would be useless because it has no meaningful impact in the lives of people. Again, that's not true. That's a distortion. When you err on one side, that's where it leads you. Either extreme can be a distortion of the truth, which is why we have to keep both of them in balance. Yes, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and dead people don't move. But God does. 
And he moved first and invites us graciously to put our trust and faith in him. And we're held responsible for our decision to either harden our hearts or surrender our lives. Let me kind of explain it this way with an illustration that might be helpful. I want you to kind of imagine, if you would, a rope that's draped over a pulley that's up high, okay? If you want that rope to hold you, but you grab one side of it, what's going to happen? It's just going to pull that rope through the pulley, right? In order for that rope to hold your weight, you've got to grab both sides and let it support you evenly, and then it'll hold you just fine. Well, divine sovereignty and human responsibility is the same thing. You have to hold them both in tension with balance with one another to uphold the biblical truths that we see in Scripture. We may not fully comprehend either one of them, but we have to know that both of them are true. And so as we look at our passage this morning, I think you're going to see that being played out in Paul's letter. So before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to you this morning, we know that we have limited understanding. Our finite minds cannot fully comprehend an infinite God. But oh, how you have made yourself known in ways that demonstrate your love, your grace, your mercies that are new every morning, your faithfulness, even in the midst of our faithlessness. So, Lord, just help us see clearly the truth of your word this morning. And would, we, would you just allow us for a moment to put aside our own opinions and ideas and take you for your word and just see how it might penetrate our heart this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, Romans chapter 10, if you want to turn there with me, beginning in verse 14. So, Romans chapter 10, verse 14. Paul's continuing to write in verse 14 and says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him who they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of great things. As we look at this section, we need to see how First of all, verse 14 connects to the previous verse where Paul says in verse 13, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he follows it, obviously, with a a series of questions. And I do believe if you look closely at these questions as we will unpack them, you'll see how they uphold both the truths of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Let me explain by starting at the end because that's really where divine sovereignty begins. Paul says, how will they preach unless they are sent? The implication is, who's sending? Who's sending? The word for preach here means to herald or to announce. And so they must have been sent with a message to announce that does not originate with them. Paul describes that message in verse 15 is good news of great things. And I believe in its context, Paul is using this to refer to the good news of the gospel, the message of salvation through faith in Christ alone. A message that did not originate with man. It's a message that was ordained by God. So 
What we learn here is that God is the primary mover. This is his plan. He sends his message through his people to announce and proclaim that to the world. But everything we know about Jesus is ultimately tied to God. Everything we understand about who Christ is was revealed by him. And all of Scripture testifies to that truth. For example, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 13, Jesus himself says, All the law and the prophets prophesied of him, speaking of Jesus, speaking of himself, until John. And here he's referring to John the Baptist. And we know when John the Baptist comes on the scene, he says, The kingdom has come. Because the Messiah is here, referring to the coming of Jesus as that promised Messiah. Just before his ascension, Jesus also said to his disciples, he said, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things that are written about me, and get this where it's coming from, the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, must be fulfilled. What Jesus is saying here is that all of the Old Testament points to me. All of the Old Testament speaks to Jesus as the promised Messiah. And his disciples understood that. Philip tells Nathanael in John chapter 1 verse 45, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets spoke, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. See, they they knew that all of the Old Testament spoke about the promised Messiah. That's the point of the Old Testament. It's revealing the plan of redemption that originates with God that is for the sinfulness of man because apart from that plan, we have no relationship with him. And so he's saying that has originated with God. It was prophesied throughout the Old Testament and now has been fulfilled through the person and work of Jesus Christ. God took the initiative and proclaims this message of redemption to a rebellious and unbelieving world. And his word did not come back void. That too is a promise of scripture. We see it in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11, where God says, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So the point here is that it all begins with God. He is the one who sins. He is the one who announces the message of salvation, the plan of redemption that originates with him. And he gives that message to those of of the world to take it to those who are in need of a Savior. And I want you to notice in this passage, it also says that people call out to God, but it's I want you to notice people who believe. It says that people who believe call out to God. They call because they're convinced. They're convinced that they know that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And understand, it's not because they have all the answers, right? What they understand is that God made a promise to bring redemption to the world. And that that promise was fulfilled undeniably in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's who they're putting their faith and trust in for salvation. Look at how he continues in verse 16. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, the Lord, or Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? 
So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You see, in God's sovereignty, his message has been preached and that message has been heard. We know that's true because it's being proclaimed this morning and you're hearing it today. Paul says the good news that they now proclaim was first announced by Isaiah. The point here being, this is not a new message. Isaiah existed hundreds and hundreds of years before Paul then proclaimed that message in the New Testament. He, he then quotes from Isaiah 53, which in my opinion is the greatest chapter in all of the Old Testament that speaks of the promised Messiah. But I think when we read our Bibles, oftentimes we go right past that. We have a limited understanding. I have an NASB. And so in the NASB, when there's an Old Testament quotation, it's in capitals. Okay? So I know when I read that verse that it's an Old Testament passage. But if you're like me, a lot of times I'll just read right past that to the next verse and don't really have a clear understanding of what that verse is intended to communicate. What I want you to understand this morning is that when Paul spoke that verse to his Jewish audience, they knew a whole lot more than just that one verse. They knew the full context in which that verse would have been read. So even though he gives them verse 1, I promise you, they knew the next 22 verses, okay? And here's what they knew. I want you to just listen to this. So Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. Listen to the verses that follow that his Jewish audience would have undeniably known. This is what it says. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, he's speaking of a person here, so listen. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, no appearance that we should be attracted to him. In other words, he's just like any other man. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening or the punishment for our well-being fell on him. And by his scourging or his wounds, we have been healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Now you tell me, who's that describing? It's Jesus. Undeniably Jesus. Spoken by Isaiah hundreds and hundreds of years before the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. He fulfilled everything. Everything that Isaiah proclaimed. Which is exactly Paul's point. They knew all about Jesus because they heard all from Isaiah. That message was fulfilled in Jesus. Paul is not announcing something new. He is proclaiming an Old Testament truth echoed over and over and over again. 
knowing this, Paul reminds them that this truth that was spoken by Isaiah did not originate with him. It was a message given to him by God to announce the plan of redemption to the world. A message fulfilled through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, the promised redeemer who was pierced for our transgressions, who was crushed for our sins. And the punishment that we deserved was placed on him. The good news of the gospel has been proclaimed. And they've heard that message. But for many of the Israelites, they have not believed. Paul is highlighting the fact that faith is the missing link for the Jewish people at this time. God has done everything to lay it out for them. But faith is the missing link for many in Israel. God is graciously revealed, but they have willfully rebelled. God sent his people to proclaim the message of good news. It is the message they have heard all throughout the Old Testament and now being echoed by the Apostle Paul. But they have not called out to God, and here's why. Because they do not believe that they need a Savior. They do not believe that they need a Savior. God sovereignly fulfilled his promise, but they have willfully chosen not to believe. Look at how Paul continues in Romans chapter 10, verse 18. He says, but I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Oh, indeed they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth in their words to the ends of the world. So in some ways, what Paul is doing here, he's kind of playing devil's advocate. He's saying, well, maybe they don't believe because they just didn't know, right? And if they didn't know, then maybe God's the one to blame. And Paul says, oh, no, that's not true at all. And then he quotes from Psalm 19 to demonstrate how that simply cannot be true. And once again, we just read this one verse. It's in capital letters. We move right past it, and we don't realize all that they would have understood when this one verse was quoted. So let me give you another example of what they would have heard when Paul quotes this verse. So Psalm 19, I'm going to start in verse 1. It says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. In them, he has placed a tent for the sun, which is a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Paul points to the evidence of his creation, of God's creation. He's saying here that the stars don't have a voice, the The grass can't use words, but all of creation speaks of its creator. Today we call this intelligent design, where instead of creation existing as some random event that just happened over time, it is made with purpose 
an intelligent design that speaks of a creator. And we know and believe that that creator is God himself. And yet Paul said earlier in Romans chapter 8, verse 20, creation was subjected to futility. The idea here being is it's not as it's supposed to be. I mean, nature's amazing, but it falls well short of what God originally intended. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. The point here is that even creation longs for redemption. Even creation wakes expectantly for the hope of God's promise. When both the children of God and the creation itself are set free from their corruption, which is only possible through the power of the promised Messiah. Since that's what creation proclaims, then the message has been heard, and we are all without excuse. Listen how he continues in verse 19. But I am sure, I, I, but I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous that which is not a nation, uh, which is not a nation, by a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I will, was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask me. Here's where Paul is kind of taking a, a, a little bit of a side note and he's trying to explain and help them understand why the Gentiles are coming to faith. And the reason this is important is because many in Israel were actually using this as a criticism against Paul and his ministry and the content of his message. Because the Jews are God's chosen people, not the Gentiles. And so if the Gentiles are involved, it must not be for the Jews. And Paul is saying, oh, it's not true. In fact, it's never been true. He quotes Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 30 true, so 32. So let's put this into context as well. I'm going to start back in verse 15. So listen to what it says, beginning in verse 15. But Je Je Jeshurun, which is actually another name for Israel. So, but Israel grew fat and kicked. You are grown fat, thick, and sleek. Then you forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. They made him jealous with strange gods and abominations that provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods who they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. You neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw this and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. This is the people of Israel. Then he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be, for they are a perverse generation, sons in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. 
here what Paul is doing is saying that God has faithfully provided for his people. But not unlike us, many times our comfort leads us into compromise, right? Well, that's what's happening in the nation of Israel. Their comfort is leading them into compromise. Moses says that they turn to other gods, which aren't even gods at all. So if they've turned to foreign gods, God says, I'm going to turn to a foreign people. We see this all throughout the te- the Old Testament, where God extends his grace and mercy outside of the nation of Israel. We saw an example of this earlier in Romans chapter 9 when Paul quotes Hosea. Remember in verse 25, it says, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not my beloved, my beloved. Again, Paul's pulling out of the testimony of the Old Testament to tell the Israelites, this is not something new. Another example that I thought of when I thought through this uh, on my own was the Ninevites, right? A, A wicked Gentile nation, and yet God extended his grace and mercy to them, and many of them were saved, despite the fact that Jonah didn't want to preach to them, right? And then you have the example of Ruth. She's not Jewish. She's a Moabite woman, but do you know that she is the grandmother of King David himself? And then there's Rahab, a Gentile prostitute who is listed in the New Testament in the lineage of the Messiah. So Gentiles have always been a part of God's plan of redemption. But Israel was obstinate because they believed that God's love was reserved precisely for them. But John 3.16 says, God so loved the world the world, all the nations, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. People belong to God, not through their ethnicity, but through their faith. As Paul said in Romans chapter 4, verse 16, for this reason, it is by, there it is, faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, speaking of the Jews, but also to those who are of faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Again, faith is the missing link for those Jews who do not believe. Paul then quotes Psalm 65.1 where he says, I have permitted myself. Listen back, let's go back to Romans chapter 10. He quotes uh, Psalm 65 and verse 21 where he says, "For, But as for Israel, he says, All the days long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. He's quoting from Psalm 65, 1, where it says, I have permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, Here am I, here am I, to a nation which did not call on my name. And then in verse 2, I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people, speaking of the nation of Israel, who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts. The point here is that God has persistently pursued his people, despite their unbelief, repeatedly, time after time, calling them to repentance. He extends his arms of grace. But they willfully choose, as we have often done, to go their own way. You see, 
God hasn't changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has never altered the path that leads to salvation. It has always pointed to Jesus, and it has always been based on faith. And what is true for the Jews is equally true for us. Even today, God's arms are held wide open, and his invitation still stands. God's word has not failed. It's our sin that is the obstacle to the relationship that we were ultimately created for. Unless we trust in Jesus to forgive our sin, our sin is a barrier that we cannot overcome. We will remain eternally separated from a life-giving relationship with God. But here's the good news. The gospel is always near. His hands are always wide open. No one, no one is exempt from eternal life. No one is outside the boundaries of God's infinite grace and love. For whoever, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a promise. So today, if you hear his voice, and you have, then harden not your heart. If today you have gone your own way, then turn and put your trust in the Lord. If today, like the Israelites, you have allowed comfort to creep into your life and lead you into compromise, then repent and sin no more. Find comfort in his sovereignty, not in your sin. Believe in his promises more than your own opinions. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will make your path straight. Again, another promise. And if you do, you can be convinced. And listen to this. Don't miss it. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor any created thing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no greater truth in all the world. And that truth has been proclaimed from the very beginning. Praise the Lord. This morning, I'm going to give you a special treat to allow you to hear from Shannon Hamlet. And Shannon is fairly new to our church. You may have remembered last week when we had a couple of baptisms, her two girls were baptized by Bruce, which were what was wonderful, by the way. Um, but Shannon has a neat story that I think you need to hear about how God has worked in her life, the ways that this passage has applied to her calling in life. And I want you to hear that story in hopes that it will encourage you to go and do the same. So, Shannon. Thank you, Pastor Todd. It's so good to be here this morning and um, hear this wonderful sermon about how God's always been a missionary God, even in the Old Testament. Um, be still and know that I am God, and I will be exalted among the nations. And I served for 20 years in China as an um, independent Baptist missionary, 
and uh, did the tourist visa thing where I had to leave every three months, did the teaching visa where I taught English, and then I did the student visa for years because Chinese is very difficult. But as you know, probably already know, China is a closed country. So what that means is it's not legal to be a missionary there. China's uh, part of the 1040 window, which I'm going to talk about. And so years later, after doing all these visas, um, I went to my coworker that I worked with since 97 said, we need to start a cafe. And um, so we can have a business visa. So we started a cafe in 2009, moved from Beijing to near Tibet, and around the corner from a university. And I was so excited because whenever you start an agenda or a platform, people can get involved. They can join what, they, you know, I can come back to the States and say, hey, listen, got this cafe around the corner from university. And people can say, hey, I can drink a cup of coffee with somebody, share the gospel that way. So that was part of the vision, too. So we have the, the business visas, and they're still there. Um, Lori's there with her twin sister, twin sister, Lisa. They're from Virginia, also independent Baptist missionaries. And so when I came back to America, got really sick um, over in China, lived there for many years with multiple sclerosis. But when I got to where I just couldn't be there any longer, I, well, because of the pollution and all that, I moved back to um, Lubbock, I moved here, back to the States. I'm originally from Louisiana, South Louisiana, but I got a part-time job out at the airport as a weather observer. So that was really good because I had lived without insurance for so many years, and now I have health insurance. And so, But what I wanted to do was start... Now, anywhere I land in America, I can you know, pretty much have a... We can, any of us could have a ministry with international students because they're everywhere, you know. They're at Tech, they're in Louisiana even, South Louisiana, Cajun country, they're at community colleges, so they're everywhere. But I wanted to um, start something, and I did, um, called the 1040 Hope. And how many of y'all could, if I had to call you out right now, how many of y'all could define the 1040 window? Okay. Okay, Brother Jeff, can you tell us? Right. Very good. And um, a missionologist came up with this term in 1990 because it was time for us to, as Christians to start thinking about how to define that part of the world where two-thirds of the world's population live, where they are the poorest of the poor live, and where 87% of them die with them never having met a Christian. And... Um, I... Uh, I started this group called 1040 Window Hope, and here are the, the countries that were represented just this week at a cafe I started here. Because the cafe went so well in China, getting teams and interns and having a platform for Christians to join, when I got here, I wanted to start a, a little cafe here. Mexico, Lebanon, which would be in the 1040 Window. Iran is in 1040 Window, and we have our friend from Iran here t today. Nepal, and we have two Nepalese here with us today, is in the 1040 window, and that was, they, come, they have come to the Bible studies this week. India, and I know we have Raja there, and um, Nigeria, and India, of course, is in the 1040 window. Colombia, Vietnam, Vietnam is in the 1040 window, and Liberia. 
So I just say I just bring out this little list just because um, it's just so exciting to be right here at Texas Tech and have opportunity to. Most of y'all are probably not going to make it to New Delhi. Would you admit? You know, nobody's going to. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody going to Pokhara, Nepal? You know, or uh, Tehran, Iran? Anytime soon? Okay. The point is this, that we can't make it over there, maybe never in our lifetimes, but right here, we have started with Margaret and Mark helping, and with now Bruce is on the team, we have started, uh, and Victory Life Baptist, we have started a, an embedded ministry right there where there's a lot of international, seven international par- apartments where internationals live, and it's Raiders Pass. So... We're so excited and can be more thrilled with everything that's happening at this little, we call it Hope Cafe. Nobody lives at the apartment. But it's my vision that every time somebody knocks on a door, on the door there, they're going to find a friend and a cup of coffee on the other side. And some ways that you can get involved, the two feeders that we have that get people to the Bible studies are, number one, we just have a lot of parties. That's what we do in China, too. We just have party after party after party. And we can... um, we, we just invite them all, and they just come and hang out. We play games and board games and everything. And then we, in China, we use English to teach them the Bible because they all want to learn English. So here in, in, at the cafe here, we have the parties. That's one feeder to get them to the Bible studies, okay? And you guys can come to parties, right? In fact, that's how you grow a church, really, or anywhere in the world, pretty much, is just having a party. Because it's where nobody's judging anybody and everybody's just hanging out. And incidentally, religion comes up, right? And Christianity with Christians. So that's the one thing we do. And the second way we get people to our Bible studies is through free driving lessons. Because when they get here from these other countries, they don't have a car. They have no way of finding someone that will loan them a car. And so we say, okay, we'll be. We let them use our car. My car is a little... Corolla, a little Toyota, and then they also get to use my car for the driving test. So this is what we do. We just say, hey, listen, we don't want to be Uber. We don't want to be Uber. We want to have a relationship with you. So because we're doing these driving lessons, we really want you to come to our Bible study afterwards and dinner. So that's how they come. That's another feeder to get them to the Bible studies. And a lot of times after they pass their driving test, we only see them for the parties afterwards and not necessarily the Bible studies, but we still have that connection with them. And so every, every Bible study we present, um, we do a systematic Bible study that helps them see the Bible systematically and in order. Like I tell them it's the cliff notes of the Bible, the big, the big events that point to you need to deliver, you need to deliver. And we, every Bible study we have, we, we do you know, give a call to salvation, and we ask them, hey, do you want, you know, but I, the point is this, that these people don't know Lebanon, Iran, Nepal, India, Vietnam, right here this week at the Bible, at the uh, cafe, and we need people to help us with the driving lessons, we need he- people to help us with um, the meals, we need people to help us go door to door to let the students know about the cafe, we need people to, like, maybe do a, a, um, a prayer breakfast on a Sunday morning instead of coming and doing Sunday school here, do something there where you teach the Bible and have a little prayer breakfast there. We need uh, 
people to even host. I mean, I'm just thinking about now, Niraj is already my adopted son, so he's taken. But I have two other gentlemen here right from the 1040 window. I have Jason from Nepal <laughs> and Baron from Baron from Iran. I'm going to call you Bobby from now on. Sometimes we have to shorten our names. But the point is this, that you could, host the, you could host somebody. You could take them in and just adopt them as your adopted international student. And we're so delighted. We always want to give a call to salvation, and that's what we're doing. And so I would love for you guys to just, you know, talk to Bruce or me and, and just come and help us out. And um, is there anything else you wanted me to share? Okay. Well, you know this, but I wanted you to hear it from Shannon that there are plenty of opportunities to minister to the world right here in our own city. And there may be ways that you want to be involved with what Shannon's doing, and she is one of many ministries like that here in Lubbock that I would encourage you to consider. Because here's the thing. In the Bible where it talks about how will they hear unless, they, uh, unless there's a preacher, the, the preacher's not an office. It's not me. That word means to announce. And that, we, that means if you are a child of God, you have a message to tell about salvation through faith in Christ alone. So guess who the preacher is? You are. We are. If you are a child of God, you are one who has been sent to announce the good news of salvation through Christ alone. And that's what we have all been called to do. And let's not find ourselves in the trap that Israel found themselves in, that they got so comfortable in the way the world was going on around them, they forgot they had a message to preach. And let's not fall into that same trap and live out the truth of the gospel in the world in which we live. Because every day we live is one day closer to the Lord's return. Let's pray for that. If you would, stand and let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for the time together. We're thankful for the family that we could just come and be com comfortable with, that nobody has to pretend. No one here has it all together. We all struggle. And yet you are so faithful and merciful and graceful. Your hands are always wide open. You invite us to put our trust in you. You bring healing. You bring hope. You bring redemption. Father, there is a message that you have proclaimed since the world began. And that message has never changed, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and you have become that Savior for us. Through your death on the cross, forgiveness of our sins, through your resurrection from the dead, you have given us the hope of eternal life. You have made a promise, and your word has not failed. So, Lord, may we embrace that truth in our lives individually but then go as ones who have been sent to proclaim that truth to the world around us. Whether that's our neighbor or friends that we have who are here for a temporary amount of time from other parts of the world, may we cherish the privilege of sharing life with them because your arms are open wide to them as well. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.